You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You know, success is such a powerful word, isn't it? Sometimes someone uh, once said, success is the sole earthly judge of right and wrong. It's the idea that the desire for success is intrinsic within us all, and that if we're succeeding at something, then we must be doing it right or doing right. If we're not succeeding, then we must be wrong. A lot of people buy into that thought. Success is the sole earthly judge of right and wrong. They buy into that. A lot of people would agree. If you ask a lot of people, they'd say, yeah, I, I see that. That was actually a quote by Adolf Hitler. Good job. <laughs> My prayer and hope for us this afternoon is that from this sermon, from God's word for us today, he'll give us a whole new perspective on success. Amen? Amen. Because here, Abram appears to have success, but we learn that this success wasn't the end in itself. We also learn that success doesn't determine if you're right or wrong, as in, I'm healthy and I'm wealthy, therefore God must love me more and must think that I'm a better Christian than you, right? Or I have a bigger church than you, therefore I must be pastoring better or I must be pastoring right more so than you. See, it applies in all areas of our lives, even in ministry. So let's get this different tune of success that has been sung from today's passage, and we'll see where we're personally at with it. Everyone say, okay. Now let's look at the story here. This is a story of four kings from Mesopotamia. It's in the area of Tigris and Euphrates. Actually, it's in the area of Babylon. So it's a pretty strategic, and it's a pretty big and pretty important area. So those four kings are going to war with five kings of the cities of the plain. The cities of the plain is the southern part of the Dead Sea. It also covered Israel. So let's hold on to your hats because my favorite story, Lord of the Rings, has nothing to this. I love it. So this is how the story unfolds. The kings of the five cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, they were all kings who were subjects under King Ketoleomer. Okay, so for about 12 years, these five city kings dutifully and faithfully paid their taxes to Ketoleomer. Everything was good. They served him when he needed people to find his armies. He would, they would send their own people. When they needed more crops, more money, they would have to send all that stuff. It was good, but then the 13th year, something happened. They stopped. No, they refused. We don't want to pay taxes to you anymore. We don't want to be your subjects anymore. No more. We want our independence. So the next year, on the 14th year, King Ketoleomer, he, along with his three allies from Mesopotamia, they went to battle against the five city kings. And it all started from down Mesopotamia, and they marched northward towards an area called King's Highway, which was like the popular trade route and travel route. And as they traveled up that path, they would destroy, they would kill and annihilate anyone who might have been coming as an aid or giver of resource to the five kings of the cities of the plain. 
And so King Cato Lamer and his, and his allies, they marched back northwest, conquering everyone and everything in their paths, destroying everything all the way up to the desert, even defeating the Amalekites, annihilating the Amorites. They left no allies, no one to help the five rebellious city kings of the plains. And finally we read here in verse 8 and 9 that the battle lines are drawn. And King Cato Lamer and his allies, they prepare for battle against the five city kings of the plain, four kings against five. You can just see it, can't you? It must have been epic. But the battle didn't take long. You see, the rebellious kings of the plain, they were destroyed. And King Cato Lamer and his friends, they captured all the goods, all the food, all the livestock, all the prisoners that they wanted, and they headed back home. Let me say this, by the way. This passage serves as another example of the validity of Scripture as, a histo- as historically accurate. Critics have always been vocal about Scripture saying, there's no secular evidence. You believe the Bible because the Bible says so. But look outside the Bible, extra biblical evidence, and see if it supports these claims. If it, cl- if it supports the names of these people, are they fictitious? Are they real? These cities, are they real or are they fake? In fact, they say this particular account uh, what we just read today, chapter 14, happened a thousand years after Abraham. But then, 1974, archaeologists, non-Christian archaeologists, secular archaeologists, they uncovered a cuneiform clay tablet which confirmed that this battle happened between 2500 and 2000 BC, exactly during Abraham's lifetime. And what's even more amazing is that this tablet held that the five cities of the plains were named in the exact same order that we find here. The exact same order. The word of God is true and reliable, amen? It is accurate and it is absolute, amen? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Amen. So, back to the story. King Cato Lamer, he defeated the five kings, and then he goes back home, and we would think that would be the end of the story, except something happens. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot. Can everyone say, come on, man? And so, someone who escaped came and told Abram about Lot's capture. So, Uncle Abram went into action. He gathered the men of his household, 318 of them. Not a big number by any means, but they were trained. And then he took some Canaanite friends, Mamre, Eshko, and Aner, and began pursuing King Cato Laomer. And when they caught up to this big and this victorious army on its way home, Abram divided his little band and attacked at night. Well, needless to say, Cato Laomer's men were surprised by the attack. And Abram was able to drive them all the way past Damascus until finally Abram took all the goods and the prisoners that he came for and then victoriously headed back home. Abram saved the day. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. How are we supposed to view all of this? Why did God give us this passage? Why are we even reading this? Why am I speaking on it? It goes to my first point. God may give you worldly success. Can you everyone say yes? <laughs> so track with me here, folks. It seems that Abram at first wasn't really the beneficiary of all these blessings. After all, we remember Lot's the one who took the land, right? That fertile piece of land for himself. But God, he promised Abram the entire land. In other words, the territory that was being fought over, that land was captured by Cato Lamer and his friends. And so that land, the land that God promised Abram and Abram, he knew that that land was 
where, the, where everything was happening. But it wasn't just that yet. There's some other stuff too. In Hebrews chapter 11, remind that all his life, Abram, he never once owned one square foot of land in his lifetime. Except for the burial plot that he bought for his wife. So everything he knew was given to him by God. Abram never owned anything himself. But here in chapter 14, God gives Abram a taste of the success he will someday give Abram's descendants. God gives him a taste. Now what's the point of all this? For the past weeks, perhaps even years, I don't know, you've been hearing me preach about what the blessing of the land really meant. You've heard me preach about what having a great name really meant. You've heard me preach about how Abram was blessed to be a blessing and so on and so forth and how everything that we've just heard all points to Christ. But we need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap that the worldly success that some of us may encounter was all because of my doing or our doing or because of my work or my intellect. You see, it's still from God. This means that God can make us successful by worldly standards. But the question we need to ask is, will he? The answer is, is it ever just a yes or no? No, it's always a yes and no. Let me talk about Proverbs for just a second. Proverbs is the book that we all read, right? We've read before many times. Sometimes if you want to do family worship, it's a good book to follow day by day because there's 31 chapters, right, just with your family. And it's relatively easy to understand. It's a pretty simple read, too. But Proverbs is full of general truths, general truths. Now, if you walk in a way that is straight and true, then generally we should live in a way that is really uncomplicated. If we work hard, if we're diligent, and if we're not lazy, then it is generally true that you'll produce some sort of harvest, some sort of fruit from your hard work. These are general truths that if we look both ways before we cross this road, that's generally true that it should be safe to cross and that you won't get hit. But there are exceptions to that, aren't there? That even if you do look both ways, you can still get hit. You can still trip up. That's what Proverbs is saying. So here, yes, we can work hard and become successful and gain wealth. But not only that, we know that God, he is the one who gives us that wealth. I've heard so many wonderful testimonies of people who knew without a shadow of a doubt that if it wasn't for God, they would not be in their position of success. You know, I remember meeting about six, seven years ago a man during my GLDI program that I attended. GLDI means Global Leadership Development Institute. Okay, it's an extension off of JAMA, Jesus Awakening Movement in America by Dr. John Kim. And I attended this program, and I met a man who owned one of the two major fiber companies that produces the fiber for McDonald's cups and Starbucks cups. Have you guys ever ripped apart a cup? You know it's not just paper, right? When you rip it, like, it's fibrous. He does it. That's his, right? He does that. Well... His company was valued at that time $500 million. And the deal that he got, the opportunity to create what he has, literally, he said, even though he worked hard, was placed on his lap by God. God gave him that opportunity. God gave him that chance. God gave him the connections. Yes, he worked hard. Yes, he and his family made sacrifices. Actually, they asked for prayer because they weren't able to get pregnant. They postponed having a family, but they knew it was God who gave them this near half a billion dollar enterprise. They drive a modest car. They, drive a, they own a modest home, nothing too big, nothing too flashy. But most of their income is dedicated and donated to missions, church plants, JAMA, GLDI. They helped people like me back then to get into this program so that I didn't have to pay a dime. Can God bless you? Absolutely but he blesses you to be a blessing to others. 
He blesses you to be a blessing back to the Lord. That's kingdom economics. You're not called to be the Dead Sea where life is poured in and you just hoard it. And everything grows stagnant and dies. We're called to be the river of life. God pours in, you pour out. Amen? God pours in, you pour out. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Don't hold it. And it's not just monetary blessings either. He can grant you more than you ever imagined. He might give you great military success as he did for Abram. May for you it's a blessing to conquer a personal battle that you're, that you're in right now. He may make you rich as he did Abram. Remember, the Bible doesn't condemn wealth and, or prosperity. So God, he may bless you, again, to be a blessing unto others. I had a friend uh, few, many years ago, and uh, he was just a great Christian brother. And he was interested in ministry. And he was thinking about going to ministry, becoming a pastor, going down seminary route and all that stuff. But his real talent, his real talent was in, was in business. He had a great and amazing financial mind. So instead of seminary, I encouraged him to explore Wall Street. I said, they need Jesus. Okay? So explore Wall Street. And it wasn't just from what I'm saying, but a lot of people affirm that too. And so he did, and he's doing remarkably well. And he's able to use his talents and gifts that God has given him to finance churches and people who are in ministry. Praise God. But not only that, God may also give you a great influence as he did Abram. Maybe God is asking you to step up and shine brightly for Christ to lead others to him. Maybe there's something about you where people are just drawn to you, right? So stop cowering away. Stop assuming someone else will do it. Stop expecting greatness from others. Stop just believing in others and start believing in yourself and what you know God is asking for you to do today. Know this. It goes to my second point. My second point is this. It's all about allegiance. Can you say allegiance? You know, trials and tribulations certainly try us, don't they? Like if you really want to test your faith, it's typically through hardship that you really get to see where, what, and in whom your faith really was resting in. So we always pray for perseverance during dark times. But can I say that in the midst of success can be just, if not, sometimes even more trying. In the midst of success. I find that times of prosperity will often turn people away from God a lot quicker than times of trouble. Because when you're in trouble, when you're in pain, when you're suffering, when you're in trials, you're looking for help. Aren't you? You're looking for God. But when times are good, all eyes are on the prize, not the prize giver. All eyes are on the gift, not the giver. All eyes are on the blessing, not the blesser. So here in verse 17, 24, Abram is coming back from this massive, huge, supernatural victory. He soundly defeated these plundering kings, and now he faces the real test of faith. So as he returns, Abram is met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now these two kings are as different as night and day. First of all, the king of Sodom, his name was Bera, and who he was and what he stood for is pretty obvious if you just look at the type of city that he was leading. It was wicked, debaucherous. And so the king of Sodom wanted to cut a deal with Abram. The deal was this. Abram gets to take all the wealth that he sees, but Bera, the king of Sodom, gets to take the people of Sodom back home with him. And by the laws of war, Abram had every right to possess everything because 
he was the victor after all. He's the one who liberated everything. But the king of Sodom, what he was trying to do was he was trying to strike a political deal with him, you see, to get what he, to get all that he can get out of it. But then Abram is also met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem is the city later called Jeru Salem. Everyone say, that's fascinating. Now, let me tell you something about Melchizedek by the meaning of his name. His title, King of Salem, means king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Sounds like a pretty good guy to me. We'll see how later Melchizedek will prove to be an important figure later on as in the Bible, David speaks about him in Psalms 110 or Hebrews chapter 7. We talk about how he is the forerunner of Christ. So Melchizedek is pretty important. Now, St. Augustine said this regarding the Old and New Testament. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And so we know from the New Testament that Melchizedek that Abram, meet, that Melchizedek that Abram meets here actually represents more than just a king. He represents Jesus Christ. So, and so as great as Abram is, Melchizedek is greater. Can you say greater? Because Melchizedek represents God himself to Abram. And he comes to bless Abram in God's name. First, by giving him bread and wine as refreshment, but also as a symbol of communion. People, does this sound familiar? Bread and wine as an act of communion where it's used to refresh the weary soul of Abram. Are you loving this? Are you seeing the connection? Are you seeing how the Old and the New Testament cannot be separated? That even if the name of Jesus isn't being proclaimed, even if the name of Jesus isn't mentioned, that he is still so represented so clearly here, even all the way here in Genesis, this is good stuff. Can you all say good stuff? So Melchizedek comes to bless Abram in the name of God and to bless God who gave Abram the victory. We read it in verse 19:20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, so this is where it gets juicy. Everyone say juicy. I don't know why I'm telling you to say juicy. So these two kings, these two kings present Abram with a choice. These two kings. And so here, Abram has to decide how he will respond to this success, which will ultimately test his faith, test his allegiance. Essentially, it's a question of pick door A or pick door B. Only the difference here in this case is that you know what's behind the doors. Do you want, here it is, do you want the words of blessing from God's servant, door A? Or do you want great wealth and fame from a pagan king? door B. Now, we're all pretty Christian-y here, I think, whether you're Christian or not. So here we know what the right answer is. But really, think about if these offers were given to you. Like, no one would know. I wouldn't know. Your family wouldn't know. Your spouse wouldn't know. It's just a decision that you had to make in complete anonymity. Which, which door would you pick? I remember back when I was in sixth grade, a youth student, and my Bible study teacher was teaching us the story of King Solomon's wisdom and how he got it. Then he asked all of us what we would pick if God says, I'll give you anything you want. And he looked to me and he said, David, what would you pick? And I said, wisdom. And he said, really? And I said, no, but I feel like I have to. The king of Sodom represented a huge, tremendous opportunity for Abram. 
Look, all the kings of the whole area, they were defeated by King Cato-Lamer. And then all of a sudden, Abram, this guy, this random guy, has no military background, has no advantage in terms of army size. He comes and he soundly defeats this great king. So just think about everything and everyone was under Abram's footstool, so to speak. Everything was his. He got it all. And now this king of Sodom comes up and extends an opportunity. It's an opportunity to build a political bridge and to usher in goodwill by releasing captives and at the same time letting Abram keep all the spoils, keep it all, keep all the wealth. In other words, he's saying, hey, mighty Abram, like you did something amazing. Like all props to you. How about this? Keep all the wealth. In fact, I'll give you more. But I will be so completely and utterly and totally indebted to you for doing me this huge favor. Can you give my people back? So Abram would be crazy wealthy, but he would also be crazy popular with no competitors. Sounds like a pretty easy and sweet deal. On the other hand, the king of Salem comes along, Melchizedek. And he offers a completely different path. Here's what Melchizedek offered. So remember, King Sodom, he said, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you connections, we'll be, I'll support you, I'll be subject under you, and all this stuff. And here Melchizedek comes and he goes, here's my offer. That you, Abram, acknowledge that this victory was God's doing and not yours. And that, Abram, you would acknowledge that considering all that you've done, that me, Melchizedek, that I'm held greater in God's eyes than you. And therefore, I deserve the honor of a tithe paid to me from you. That Abram, you give all the money that you acquire, all the people, and abandon all political advantage or interests in this situation. And Abram, also lastly, that you go back to where you're living near the trees of Mamre, as an alien, as a nobody, as a stranger, as a foreigner, in the very land that God promised you, go back. That is my offer to you. In other words, give it all up. Surrender to God everything you've done, everything you've become, and everything you want. He says, surrender it all. What would you do? What would you do? Let me read from verse 22-24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Are you getting what Abram said here? He knew that there was nothing wrong with money. There was nothing wrong with prosperity. There was nothing wrong with gaining political ties to ensure potential peace. But this is what Abram realized. He realized that he would not and he could not compromise his allegiance and his faith in God as his only hope. It's God or nothing. In other words, Abram saw that from the deal that King of Sodom, with the deal of King Sodom, that there was a tiny fractional possibility of the King of Sodom gaining for himself some of God's glory. And Abram said, 
That's not going to jive with me. That's not going to work. Every ounce, every fraction, every little bit of the glory of God is his. Not yours, not mine, but his. Abram knew that if he took on the king of Sodom's deal and he got all that wealth, all that popularity, all that worldly success, that he would not be able to say that his sole dependence and sole source of blessing was God. In other words, the king of Sodom or Barrow could say and probably would say, yeah, yeah, Abram and those religious people, I know they say that God gave them money, but the real reason Abram's doing so well is because, you know what, I gave him all my possessions. It was me. I connected him. I hooked him up. It was me. If it weren't for me, he'd be down there, but he's up because of me. And Abram, he didn't want to compromise. And so by faith, Abram rejected the deal of a lifetime with Sodom, and instead he clung onto the promises of God. Because for Abram, get this, he was hungrier for the promises of God than for the fleeting promises of the world. Are you? Are you hungrier for the word of God, for his promises, or are you hungry for the allures, the attraction, the fleeting broken promises of the world? You know, I think for many Christians, it's a hard battle. I get it. I'm there. Because we want two things. We want the world, but we also want the things of God. But I think a way for us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, but to also help us change our perspective when it comes to success, is that we need to look into the Word of God and how it, how the Word of God defines success for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So get this. Success is is that when you're weak and you're in trouble, but you look to God as your source of strength in times of suffering, that you can do all things through him who gives you strength, that is success. Success is when you're tempted and in the midst of spiritual compromise, but you know that you've been blessed by God's grace, that you don't have to walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the, in the company of mockers, but your delight is in the law of the Lord. That is success. Success is even though you have no idea what tomorrow has for you, a life-threatening diagnosis, a termination from work, or but you still commit to the Lord whatever you do and trust that he will establish your plans and say, God, you know my future. You are successful. Success is when everyone you know, even the people who walked in faith with you for years, but end up abandoning their faith and their principles, and they forfeit their souls to gain the world, but you trust, you know, and you're holding fast that the Son of God will one day come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what you've done and you're holding fast to that. That is being successful here in this world. Success is even if you're tired, even though you're being stretched and you're stretched in work, stretched in your family, stretched in ministry, but you know that whoever, but you know that Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But as tired as you are, you know that the Lord God is your source of strength. That is success. Success is even when life seems unforgiving without an end in sight, but you're not led by fear, but instead you have faith that God is with you because God is your God. He will strengthen you, and you trust that he will help you, and you trust that his grace is with you. Then you know that he will uphold you with his righteous right hand. That is success. Success is even if... Your life group fails you, even if your church fails you, even if your spouse fails you, even if your children fails you, that you know and you know that you're still blessed because you have Christ and your confidence has never been in any man or anything but Christ alone and none other. That is success. 
I can go on and on and on about how successful I have seen you all. I don't need to look at your bank account. I don't need to look at your walls of diplomas. What is success in the eyes of God? It is one who, like Abram says, my allegiance is not to him or to her or to that thing, but to God alone in Christ, not in the people nor the things of the world, but the one who made the world, Christ Jesus. My heart is for you. Look, folks, you and I are no different than Abram. And the world we live in is just as seductive. Even the good things of the world can become an occasion for compromise. But the one who stands before us and invites us to himself, it's not Melchizedek, it's Christ Jesus himself. Like Melchizedek to Abram, Jesus calls us today. He calls us to acknowledge that all we have is only by the grace of God. Like Melchizedek said to Abram, Jesus calls us to bow before him and honor him with our wealth. God calls us to renounce our allegiances that we have made with the world and instead put our unwavering faith in the promises of God. What will become of us if we do this? What will become of you and I when we say no to the world and yes to Christ? Like Abram, we'll leave and we'll have to live as a stranger and alien in this world. More and more, this world will no longer look captivating, no longer feel like home, because this is not your home. But by faith and by the promise God has made, one day, someday, we will inherit the whole earth with Jesus Christ as our King. So what's the Word of God saying to you all today? Where have you placed your allegiance in? In whom have you placed your allegiance in? Is this worldly allegiance making your commitment to Christ and his people, his church, a bit soft? Are these worldly allegiances twisting and entangling you so much that you no longer feel free to follow Christ? Will the word of God no longer is attractive? Where time in solitude and prayer is just a burden? If so, whatever that allegiance is, whatever it is, get rid of it. Because there can only be one allegiance in a Christian's life, and that is to Christ alone, none other. Amen? Let's pray. The word of God has been spoken. Before I say anything more, think I've said enough what the word of God desires to speak in your heart if you'll let him so would you take this opportunity just to pray and reflect and meditate and be introspective think and evaluate judge your heart God what have I been just placing my allegiance in all this time all these years perhaps Those allegiances to the things and to the people of this world, they will fail you. Our marriages will fail us. Our children will fail us. Our parents will fail us. Our churches, I will fail you. But Christ will not because he cannot. Because he is God. And he is a promise keeper. And his covenant is bound by his oath, not yours. 
This is a time to repent and to give up and surrender what we've have paid our allegiance to for so long. It is time to give it up. And it is time to surrender to him. But also be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that in the eyes of the world, you may not drive a fancy car or own a big home. You may not wear the trendiest of clothes. You may not have an esteemed college or graduate school diploma. But if your steps are in the ways of the Lord, if you walk in his commandments, if you love God passionately, if you love one another with all your heart, you, in his eyes, are successful. You are succeeding. Consider that and go with that and be encouraged. Let's take this time and pray.